This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Catherine Fitz, Robert Kennedy, thank you both for joining me in the trenches and God bless both of you for the amazing work that you both have been doing. Thank you, Germ. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, um, Bobby, when you and I last spoke, you were just about to launch your book, The Real Anthony Fauci. It has done phenomenally well. Congratulations on that. Thank um, you. I believe, I believe there's a French version coming out. Yes. I think this week we released the French version. The English versions have surpassed um, a million sales in sales in all wow. formats. Um last month and uh you know that's without any reviews and major publications uh it's a complete boycott on advertising and uh and promotions so i'm very very pleased with how it's done and the strong support that we've gotten from the community it's a phenomenal book i mean it's like an encyclopedia you have this immense immense amount of citations yeah, there's 2,200 citations. I mean, we, I want it to be, one of the things I avoid in that book is I don't look into people's heads. I don't say this is what Tony Fauci was thinking or what Bill Gates was thinking. I don't speculate about those. Everything that every factual assertion in that book is cited and sourced to something. And we have a QR code, which I think is the first time ever been done where people can actually read my focus on that QR code in the, in the footnotes can uh, can actually read the citation in real time, you know. Um, so we wanted to, and we've also made a pledge that if there if people do find errors in it, that we'll immediately correct them. We have opportunities to do that because I think we've now had thirteen editions. Uh, Sheesh. We're about to um, to publish a new uh, two-volume edition that's a lot easier to read and has an index in it. People should know this because you know we weren't we were literally not able to put fit an index into the book. We really they printed the okay. cover early, and um, and by the time I finished writing, it was about twice as long as we expected, and so. We had to do a lot of tricks that are, that are not aesthetically pleasing in order to fit all those words between those two covers, and we just didn't have the room for an index. So we we do have an index on CHD's website, so people can use that index. But you know, most people who read the book are not going to figure that out. And uh, the next the next version of the book, the next edition, will have an index in the book actually. I think it's going to be helpful to people. I was laughing there because when you said QR code, I think Catherine's jaw went out of joint. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not that kind of QR code. I know. <laughs> um, Catherine, you said you read the book in one day. Yeah, I didn't intend to do that. So I had gotten, I just, it came in on a Friday. I got, you know, each time I ordered, I got 10 copies. And it came in on a Friday and I thought, you know, I was curious and I thought, I'll just read a little, but I was assuming, you know, that I knew most of it and that, mm. that, so it wouldn't be. And I read the first chapter and I just couldn't stop. I went all day. And this is a very, you know, this is a very intense book. There are a lot of footnotes. Mm. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of facts. It was, I, it's very well written. And it's much yeah. easier to read despite how heavy the topic is and the density. But for me, it was like a mystery novel. I couldn't put it down. I mean, it's a true crime thriller. It's really, you know, this should be number one, not only in current events or geopolitics, but number one in true crime. It is a true crime story. So it's, and, and it helps you understand what has been happening in America and what is happening to people's health. I call it the great poisoning. And it's one of mm. the best pieces of documentation that there is a great poisoning and it's not an accident. So, and there was a lot in there that I had no idea, despite all the 
research and reading that I've done. Um, another thing, I, there's a review, I wrote a review immediately and it's up on the Children's Health Defense website, but one of the things you feel, um, which you know, Jeremy, just by being familiar with Children's Health Defense, to do this book, you, you pull together such an amazing group of doctors and scientists and investigative journalists and you almost felt I said in the review, you almost felt like it was a 21st century Zulu army that pulled together to help support the creation of this book. And it, you know, and that's why you, you have complete, when you read it, you just have complete confidence in the integrity. You can tell it's written by somebody who's very experienced in litigation, you know, and it's very documented and you realize this guy has completely nailed this story. And it's, it, it, for me, it was quite remarkable. And as I said, I couldn't put it down. So um, it's hard to describe this story as one that's entertaining, but it is a, it is a really, uh, you know, it, it's in a remarkable story of our history and you can't understand our world without reading something like this. I just think if you want to understand the world we live in today, this book is a must read. What, what led you to write the book? Well, I've been in this kind of fist fight since 2005, but even before that, since 1986, I've been in litigation against big polluters and about, you know, the oil industry, the chemical industry, big agriculture, um, et cetera. And also the regulatory agencies that are supposed to protect Americans and the environment from the bad behavior by those industries. I was very, very conscious of this phenomena of regulatory capture, which I think most Americans really don't uh, have a grasp on that these regulatory agencies, all of them to one extent or another, become uh, essentially sock puppets for the industries that they're supposed to regulate. And there's a number of different mechanisms, including funding controls, congressional controls, um, uh, revolving doors in which, you know, people go back and forth uh, and profit. People who are working at the agencies, many of them have an expectation that they will um, that they will graduate to a much higher paying job in the regulated industry if they, you know, if they do make certain decisions in certain ways. Through all of these mechanisms, the the regulatory agency often becomes just radicalized, not just captive the industry, but radicalized even more protective of industry interests than any particular company will be of their of their own interests. They, they they almost behave like a trade association, which always kind of takes the most radical approach, pro industry approach. And the um, and so I knew about that, and I was familiar with these mechanisms, and I knew Tony Fauci, and I understood what was going to be happening at the beginning of the pandemic. That this was not going to be about public health. This was going to be mm. about using the, the pandemic as a crisis of opportunity to promote the uh, the mercantile interests of the pharmaceutical industry, but not just pharma, of the, uh, the, you know, pharma has very close relationships with the military agencies and ultimately much closer. I discovered this as I was writing the book uh, with the intelligence community. And they, the link, the nexus for that link is the biosecurity program and the biosecurity agenda, which has been the, um, the spear tip in American foreign policy since the anthrax attacks on 2001. So the military and intelligence agencies began shifting huge amounts of money into bio warfare. Uh, vaccines are a key part of, bio, of, of biological warfare. One, because they allow, um, they allow military and public health regulators and intelligence agencies to do it, what would otherwise be illegal bioweapons development uh, by claiming that it's dual use. In other words, it has a defensive use 
because what we're really doing is is developing vaccination, but the same technology that you use to develop a vaccine is the same technology that you use to develop a bioweapon. You know, it's called gain of function technology. In addition to that, vaccines are a strategic um, part of military offensive warfare, not just defensive. If you're going to develop a bioweapon, you got. If you're going to deploy it, you got to develop a vaccine first, because there, for every bioweapon, there's blowback. You cannot guarantee that the wind direction is going to stay where you want it to stay. Mm. Fast-spreading disease, it's going to come back on your own people, and you need before you ever deploy it, you need a vaccine that will protect your soldiers, and your civilians against that bioweapon. So they're all tied in with each other, and the, the military has always been linked with, to the public health agencies. The, you know, NIH came out of the U.S. Navy, CDC was originally public health service, which was a quasi-military agency. These agencies kind of grew up because throughout history, in virtually every war throughout history, bugs have claimed more casualties than bullets. You know, if you, whether it's yellow fever or malaria or, you know, um, or just stomach uh, flus and these kind of things or smallpox, it's all, the bugs are, are the things that ultimately impose more casualties than anything else during war. Oh, it's always been a military imperative to, um, you know, to invest lots of money in, uh, in in medical technologies, medical protocols that are that can protect your troops against uh, dysentery and cholera and you know and smallpox and malaria and yellow fever and pilharzia and all of these other diseases. Well, there's always been a very very strong uh, link between the military agencies and the intelligence agencies and the public health agencies. You know, in CD, CDC will used to be the public health service, which is a military agency. That's why people at CDC still have wear uniforms. They have military ranks, like Surgeon General. Um, so, uh, you know, there's been this alliance that ended up after 2001. The Pentagon began putting it. Was, we we illegalized weapon biological weapons development in 1972 and then but in 2001 the military wanted to get it we closed all the labs Fort Detrick all over the country beginning in 2001 because after the anthrax attacks the military wanted to get back in the game but they didn't believe that they could go out and begin spending money on it because nobody would consider it plausible that the Pentagon was just wanting to innocently develop vaccines, which is the only way it would be legal. So instead of doing it themselves at first, they shifted uh, at that time $1.7 billion a year to Tony Fauci. It's now $2.2 billion to essentially do weapons development. And Fauci himself profited enormously. He got a 68% raise, which is tied to his continued uh, uh, development of bioweapons. So in 2014, he opened a bunch of, easy, he, he opened three uh, uh, BS Health labs, which is the, the highest uh, level laboratory, and then and 13 lower labs like BS Health 3, BS Health 2 at universities around the country. And then in 2014, three bugs escaped from those facilities or, uh, or near escape. And 300 leading bioweapons experts and scientists like Richard Ebright from Rutgers University and Mark Lipsitch from Harvard wrote a letter to President Obama saying, you have got to stop Fauci. I'm continuing these experience, experiments because he's going to cause a global pandemic. And President Obama ordered Fauci to stop. He sent um, he sent cease and desist orders to 18 of 
uh, Dr. Fauci's gain-of-function projects in this country. And Fauci essentially defied him. And he continued, he, despite the cease and desist orders, he continued developing these weapons. But he also shifted a lot of his weapons development to Wuhan. And he began laundering money through this kind of uh, uh, this, this bioweapon, this zoologist, this British zoologist, Peter Daszak, at the EcoHealth Alliance. So that, in, so, so that on paper, it looks like NIH is giving the money to EcoHealth Alliance, which does research all over the world on pathogenic organisms. But in reality, it was a way of funneling money to the Chinese lab and and they you know this very 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 odd relationship between Chinese military scientists that lab is run by the Chinese military um the all there it's all everything that's done there is supervised by the Chinese military the Chinese are very very open unlike us the Chinese are very open that what we're doing is developing bioweapons and uh and they they're not coy about it at all they've written mm. papers on it you know it, it, they're completely unambiguous about it and the the relationship between the u.s public health officials who are teaching these chinese scientists how to perfect their techniques and intelligence officials because ouchie as much money as he was pouring into the wuhan lab he was it was a fraction of what the CIA was putting in through USAID and what the Pentagon was putting directly through DARPA and BARDA and through uh, other agencies, the the, uh, um, uh, the Homeland Security, uh, you know, Department of Homeland Security was putting all these weird military groups were pouring money into a Chinese lab that's run by the military to teach Chinese scientists not only how to do these gain-of-function techniques, how to take a, a, a basically a harmless bug, harmless human's bug from the anus of a bat that and, and take it and teach it using engineering techniques, teach it how to infect human beings and turn it into a pandemic. So what they, they showed the Chinese how to make humanized mice with ACE2 receptors in their lungs so that when they infected one mouse in that colony with a coronavirus germ, then they could see if they could make it cough and infect through Unbelievable. aerosolized droplets to make it infect all the mother mice in that colony. And when they had done that, and then they had, that was the success they were looking for. They were deliberately trying to create a pandemic virus. And they succeeded in multiple times. But I'll just tell you one last thing, because there's been a long answer to a short question. Um, I, one of the real tells that occurred during this, um, during, during this relationship between Fauci's biggest uh, beneficiary was a U.S. scientist called Ralph Barrick, who's at the University of North Carolina, and he runs a BSL-4 lab there. And he was the one who was teaching the Chinese scientists. He developed these techniques for taking a spike protein that he had engineered, which had a furrant cleave in it, which was designed to operate as a key the ACE2 receptors in a human lung and, and inject the virus. Oh, he had developed this technique and he was removing the spike proteins from the natural coronavirus and, 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 and replacing them with spike proteins, which he had created. And, but, and so you can say, okay, that's a vaccine. You're doing that so that you can then infect mice and then you can inject some of the mice with your vaccine and see if they're protected. So that's kind of what they were saying they were doing. But Tony Fauci also financed Barrick to develop something called a seamless ligation technique, which is a special technique for hiding the human tampering on these viruses. This is the opposite 
of what you would do if you were looking to, if you were trying to benefit public health. There is no reason to do that. And to be able to kill a lot of people and say, it wasn't me. That's the only reason that you would have, it's about developing bioweapons. It is not about developing vaccines. And Barrick developed that technique and then he taught it to the Chinese. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very bad story. In 2021, telling the intelligence agencies, tell us where, you know, was this lab created or not? The intelligence agencies come back in 90 days and say, we don't know. Well, they had to say that because they were financing it over there. So let, let's know that. Nobody knows that, you know, unless they unless they're reading, you know, me or other alternative media. But let me jump in because all of the all of the spending and all of the funding that you're talking about, billions of dollars, is all provided through the appropriations budgets. And there are committees overseeing and appropriating all this money to Fauci for all these activities and all these programs. And at any time along the way, those committees can say stop. So when your book came out and this all became clear to them, they haven't said stop. They can pull the money anytime they want. Yeah, the problem is right now, and I never thought I'd say this, but the Democrats controls the Senate and the Congressional Appropriations Committee, and they, they would, none of them would read my book. Oh, you have Republicans who have read the book, and I've gotten many, many you know, letters from them but, and saying that they would do exactly that. Right. Um, but, you know, the Democrats don't read the book. It's interesting because, you know, I don't believe, Catherine, that they're doing it maliciously. I think they just think, you know, they believe the propaganda. They think Kennedy's crazy. He's lying. He's filled with misinformation. Why would I read a book when I know it's all misinformation? So they believe this. And they won't look. It, you know, one of the... Um, the stories that I read recently about Galileo is when, you know, Galileo was kind of alone in the world saying that the sun, we, the, the sun does not rotate around the earth. The, the earth rotates around the sun. And he had proven this by tracking the satellites and the stars using a telescope that he had invented. And what he said, you know, after he was he was he was forced to recant with the threat that he would be burned at the stake. And afterwards, he wrote that it was not just the church and the clerics who were forcing him to recant. It was all the other scientists of his age. And he said he said he took note of this. He said, I could never get them to even look into my telescope. So they were clinging to the orthodoxy. And this, I think, is a phenomena that, you know, transcends the ages, is orthodoxies have such power over the human mind. And it's really kind of a, it's a, we're biologically hardwired to follow a powerful leader and to, you know, to accept the cosmology and, and, you know, be very tribalistic about asserting it and about denying any other view of the world. And that, people uh, are easily swept up into that biological impulse. And we're, to, the, to the extent that people, you know, liberals more than anybody else in the world prides itself on critical thinking and prides itself on, on uh, tolerance and openness to new ideas, etc. And yet you've seen over the past two years that just the door shut tight on that. So not even a little bit of light can shine through. They will not look at alternative science. They will, anybody who disagrees with them becomes right-wing Trumpers. And, you know, it, 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 it's the imposition of the right. kind of tribalistic, uh, you know, silos. And you can't but one of, one of the most compelling statistics in your whole book is you describe what's been happening to American children and with chronic disease and with IQs. And we're literally watching a poisoning of children that will ultimately produce a generation that can't function 
in a modern society. Mm. I would think well, Congress could take it's notice a of generation that. that if you look at it, it's it's and I'm not saying this is deliberate, but it is being engineered for compliance. Right. You know, right. for people who won't question, the people who are snowflakes, they're vulnerable, they're frightened, they're susceptible to fear, and fear is uh, the most powerful propaganda control technique because it disables the capacity for critical thought. And if you have a whole sort of generation of snowflake children who are, you know, who are, um, who are damaged by chronic disease, who are dependent on pharmaceutical drugs. Now we know as of 2006, 54% of our children had some debilitating chronic disease. You know, this is up from 6%. Right. And Tony Fauci came into office and it's growing every year. I'm sure it's a bit higher than 54% less now because 2006 is a long time ago. It's 18 years ago. And that's the last time they showed in in 1986. It was 11.8 percent of kids had chronic disease. In their early 60s, it was six percent. So the trajectory is really alarming. And as you point out, you know we've lost seven IQ points. There's something uh, this generation of kids. Although my kids are. All seem smarter than me, and they uh, <laughs> they believe that they're smarter than me, and I think they they're probably right. But generally speaking, there's a there's something called the Flynn effect, which uh, say it again. It's called the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect. Okay. Uh, Flynn. And it's an observation that for every ten years since 1900, there has been a three point. Um, increase in IQ among children. So IQ has steadily raised, and I, I don't know why that's true. I know that, um, you know, that probably it has something to do with nutrition, but also public education system and just better prenatal care, whatever it is. I don't know, but it is a documented effect, and anybody can go look it up on Google. Okay, and and no, in in ten minutes you'll know a lot more about it than I do. But um, there are studies now that show since the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, children globally in Western nations have lost seven IQ points. Oh, it's the wow. first time that we've seen a decline now. There was a Brown University study during the pandemic that said the young children, and I think this is children under two, have lost 22 IQ points during the pandemic. Now, you know, I saw that and it was so shocking. I was going to ask you what you thought of it. Yeah. Well, I said, I mentioned it to my wife, and she said to me, How can they even give an IQ? Test to a kid. I don't think you can give an IQ test. Right. My wife knows a lot about um, special needs and has spent a lot of her life thinking about special needs. And she said that. So and I couldn't really answer that question, but I've asked a couple of people who who say, yeah, there are tests that they you know they follow your eye, the baby's eyes, they look to see how he smiles, etc. And again, I'm I'm way off of anything that I, is in my wheelhouse. Uh, but at any rate, the Brown study is out there and anybody can look it up. And, and you know, I've mm. cited it a number of times, but we've seen it as well. It's kind of a assault on, um, on child IQ. And, you know, what I say is you can't say it's all from the vaccines. Nobody can say that. We know that these things are listed as side effects for the vaccines. There's, I think, or 420 adverse events that are listed on the 72 vaccine doses that are now mandated for our children. So, and all of these chronic diseases that, you know, afflict our children, obesity, autoimmune diseases, neurodevelopmental disease, allergic disease like peanut allergies, all of those are listed as vaccine side effects. So we know vaccines can cause those injuries, but we cannot say that the epidemics and all those right. are solely related to the vaccine schedule. And you can't sue. Our children today are swimming around in a toxic soup mm, of right. pesticides, neonicotinoids, glyphosate, PFO, 
as his PFOAs, flame retardants, um, you know, uh, and a million other, not a million, there's actually a finite number of things, but also cell phone radiation, Wi-Fi radiation, which, you know, plus they're looking at screens all day and we have no idea what that's going to do to their, you know, to their brain capacity, whether it's going to make them smarter than us or not smarter or whatever, we don't know. But the, the, the thing that irritates me is that NIH has a $42 billion annual budget and right. this should be its primary concern. You know, infectious disease kills almost nobody anymore, you know, until COVID, which appears to be a man-created disease designed to kill people. Right. Prior to that, infectious disease in Western countries was negligible cause of death. So why are we spending almost all of that 42 million on infectious disease? And the real, the thing that is most debilitating and threatening to our civilization is the rise in chronic disease. And we know it's easy to figure out what's causing these. Right. We have the databases. If you, if you told scientists it was okay to research these things, we would have thousands of peer-reviewed studies in months. Right. The problem is scientists are not allowed to do it. And and that is a deliberate, purposeful policy by Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, uh, and Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust and all the pharmaceutical companies. And if you look at just those three people and Bill Gates, or those four people, Fauci, Collins, Farrar, and Gates, they control 63% of the biomedical research budget on earth for all biomedical research. And then you add the pharmaceutical companies. Jeez. It's probably 85, 90%. And right. they do not want anybody doing that research. And they will ruin your career if you do it. They will bankrupt your university if your if your university allows you to do it. So they've been able to silence the debate on those discussions. So a process began in the 90s where the effort to balance the U.S. budget was, they gave up. And literally, from where I sit, the next month they started to engineer policies. If, if, you, can't, if you can't get the, the retirement funding up to the level you need it, as a budget matter, you have only other, one other way to balance the budget, and that's to lower life expectancies. And literally the day, the month after they gave up sort of on the budget and then started to engineer the financial coup, we saw two things happen. Massive predatory lending started at coming out of HUD, literally the, the next month, and the FDA approved OxyContin. And if you look at the predatory lending in the pill mills, they were, they were basically targeted at the same neighborhoods from what I can tell. But a process began, Jeremy, where, and I call it the great poisoning, you know, a series of policies rolled out that ultimately produced a world in which people's toxicity levels were rising, they were being poisoned, and their immune systems were deteriorating for, you know, it's thousands of different reasons. It's very complicated. It's not one thing. But I noticed it first when I was driving around America trying to warn people that money was being disappeared from the U.S. government. So we had a financial coup, and I've talked a lot about all the money that was disappearing. But as that money was disappearing, what I was noticed was just as you drove around and spent time with people in America, life expectancies were coming down. People were getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And and you could anecdotally see what Bobby has been describing and showing us the statistics for and I think there is absolutely a relationship between um, weakening a population for change in control um, and, and centralizing control. So I think this has all been part and parcel of changing the system of governance in America from, from a republic with democratic process to one where you're trying to engineer very tight central control. Technocratic. And, technocratic control, but also control, you know, the, the goal of creating central control is doing it in a way that makes money for the people centralizing power. And, and if you look at the industries that we've been talking about, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry or the healthcare industry, they've made a significant contribution to centralizing control 
and centralizing the power in the economy. And so, and so it's, it's really one integrated picture. One of the reasons, if you haven't read um, Bobby's book on Fauci, because he makes the connections to the pharmaceutical industry, he makes the connections to the intelligence agencies, he makes the connections to all different parts of the economy, it starts to make it much easier for you to see an integrated picture in how this fits into this bigger picture of really a change in control. Because what we saw with COVID-19 is the financial coup literally morphed into a political coup. And now we're talking about real changes in governments. We haven't mentioned yet the, the treaty that the WHO is working on or some of the other efforts to centralize control. But you know, behind the scenes, we're watching incredible efforts, both on the financial side, as we saw in Canada with the control through the banks, or as we saw through COVID, the, the healthcare side, trying to really implement central control. So to me, this is a, is a coup that has emerged out of a financial coup. And that financial coup has, has literally been tracking with what I call the great poisoning, which is this is all part of. Has the vaccine industry become this massive money-making machine that is absolutely not interested in, in health? Well, yeah, it has. It, it, um, it's a very, very strange science because, it, I mean, the, you know, I've, I've always said I'm not any vaccine. I'm just pro-science. Show me a vaccine that works. Mm-hmm. And I will be for it. And by works, I mean, you look at a vaccinated population and a similar situated unvaxed population, and then five years later, you have better health outcomes and better all-cause mortality in the vaccinated group. That's what I would call a successful vaccine and one that I would fully support. Um, I. No, those studies are never done. In fact, we sued the vaccine. We sued NIH because, well, I was saying for years there has been no placebo-controlled study in any pre-licensing study for any of the 72 mandated vaccine doses ever. And Tony Fauci was publicly saying that's not true. We have, all of them are tested. Well, when we met with him in 2016, I said, Tony, show me you keep saying they're out there and he said oh i'll get it to you of course he never did and then we sued him the next year aaron siri and i or i can and first chd and after about a year of litigation they came back and they admitted nia or hhs admitted there are no pre-licensing studies placebo control studies for any vaccine not one so um the problem is if you don't have that, you can't really tell what whether the vaccine is actually averting more problems than it's causing, which is the claim. They all say, yeah, you know, vaccines do kill and injure people, but they are saving more lives. But how do we know that if you don't have any science that shows it? And in, in 2017, Bill Gates was trying to get the Danish government to support his DTP vaccine program in Africa. DTP is a diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. It is the most popular vaccine in the world because it is used as the milestone vaccine by the World Health Organization to judge vaccine compliance in all the African and South Asian countries. So you will not get your your financial support for your health ministries and for your HIV programs and the other vaccine and medical programs from WHO unless you can demonstrate a certain uh, percentage of your population is getting the DTP. Gates wanted wanted the Danish government to support his DTP program and he said we've saved 30 million kids and the Danish government says show us the study well of course there was no study mm. you know there you can you can see the area tetanus and pertussis has decreased but you don't know whether more kids have survived so the danish government decided to do a study and they funded the study with Novo Nordisk, which is a vaccine company the statin serum institute which is a vaccine company and other government agencies they did a massive study in western africa looking at 
kids who had gotten the vaccine over the 30-year period and comparing them to kids who didn't. And in some of those countries, like Guinea-Bissau, there was almost a perfect experiment because the way they gave the vaccine, about half the kids in the country had gotten and half it didn't between the ages of, uh, of two months and five months of age. And when they looked at 30 years of records, they saw that girls who got the vaccine were 10 times more likely to die than children who didn't. Wow. Over the next six months, but the girls were not dying of any cause that anybody had ever associated with a vaccine. They were dying of malaria, and sepsis, and anemia, and bilharzia, and and river blindness, and all of these other diseases that are endemic in Africa. Gee. Um, but no, and nobody had ever looked and said, "Wow, it's only vaccinated girls who are dying." And the boys did not seem affected. It was just the girls who were dying. You know, the boys were dying more, more often, but the girls were dramatically um, dying more quickly. And what the researchers who are all pro-vaccine, very famous people like Peter A. Abey, who's kind of a deity in the African vaccine program, what they concluded was that the vaccine was killing more, was probably killing more people than diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis before the vaccine was introduced. And that the vaccines were protecting these children against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, but they had ruined their immune systems. So the kids could not defend themselves against conventional infections. Sheesh. So that's why you need long-term placebo-controlled trials because you do not know that the vaccine is designed to permanently alter your immune system. And you do not know whether that vaccine is going to, you know, whether it's weird. It's interesting because in some vaccines, you see all-cause mortality rise dramatically people will say well but a lot of those kids died of drowning they died of car accidents they fell from trees etc that couldn't be vaccine related but that's not how statistics work maybe they are vaccine related maybe you have depression maybe you have seizures that are associated with vaccine and you have to look at all of these impacts and if consistently more people are dying following vaccination and and people who you leave alone you then have to look at that and ask the question why, and that is never, ever done. So using this rubric of just telling people the vaccines are averting more problems than they're causing, just saying that again and again with no science to support it, they have increased this, um, you know, the use of vaccination. When I was a kid, the vaccine industry was worth about $247 million annual revenue. Today it's 60 billion, but the real advantage of the vaccine is what you pointed out that, you know, pharmaceutical companies do not want to make you healthy. They would rather, you know, from a financial viewpoint, they'd rather keep you sick. And I'm not saying people who work for pharma are thinking like that all the time, but that dynamic, if you understand economics will ultimately drive behavior. And the, the big revenues to the, to, the, to the pharmaceutical industry are not necessarily from vaccines, but from the chronic diseases, mm. this explosion of chronic diseases. So it's if downstream. You, if you, I got measles when I was a kid. And my, I had at that time, I think, nine siblings. You know, we later made more of them. But at that point, there was about nine of us. We all got measles together. We all survived it. As did, you know, measles was killing at the time they introduced the vaccine in 63. It was, it was uh, death rates were infinitesimal, one in 500,000. There's only 400 kids a year who were dying of measles in the United States. Almost all of them were mal badly, badly malnourished before the, you know, the war on poverty. So virtually everybody survived measles. But, and, you know, we stayed at home and we watched Sea Hunt for a week and, we had <laughs> and you know, we had a lot of fun. The, the uh, treatment for measles is chicken soup 
and vitamin A. You can't bat much. What if you're giving the measles vaccine to every American kid, uh, 76 million kids, and one out of a thousand of those kids is getting uh, seizures, and one out of 3,000 is getting lifetime epilepsy? Now you have a pool of kids who are relying on you, on your drug for the rest of your life. Oh, you know, when you have these explosions, I didn't, I have 11 brothers and sisters, about 70 first cousins. I didn't know anybody with a peanut allergy when I was a kid or eczema. So why do I, five of my seven kids have allergies? What happened? You know, and those allergies, and we know allergies are caused by vaccines. Um, we don't know that all of them are, but we know that the aluminum vaccines can cause allergies. You can you can cause allergies in rats by injecting them with the aluminum adjuvant from the hepatitis B vaccine. See. Oh, um, so now my kids need the six hundred dollar EpiPens, and you have a whole generation of kids that has reading disorders, learning disorders, and they're dependent on the Adderall, the Concerta, the Ritalin. You know, kids need the anti-seizure medications and the albuterol inhalers and, you know, all of these other things that are associated with um, chronic disease. And that is about a half trillion dollar annual industry. So, you know, it has made that chronic disease treatment during most of my career, the oil industry was the biggest industry in the world. Today, it's pharma. And it's because of that explosion in chronic disease. Why then is the vaccine passport a Trojan horse? So the vaccine passport combined with a digital financial system gives the people managing it complete control. So if you need to radically reduce someone's economic footprint, if you need to control their behavior, where they travel, what they do, what they have access to, it gives you complete control. So if I can deny you the ability to travel, if I can deny you the ability to access the internet, if I can deny you the ability to affect a bank transaction, not only can I control what assets you do and do not own and, and where you go, but I can control what you do. So let's say, for example, um, you know, we saw this in Canada with the with the truckers mm. and their supporters money essentially turned off. Um, what you can do is you can literally convert a, a governance structure from a republic subject to a constitution and democratic process to a slavery system. I mean, we're talking about complete control. The coup d'etat that you that you speak of. Yeah. This is this is a if if we go to a hundred percent digital transaction system, then I can dictate to you, you know, every aspect of your life and every aspect of what you do, where you go, you know, your labor, your travel, and ultimately I can strip you of your assets, including your children. Yeah, I mean, look at what they look at what Justin Trudeau did to the truckers and. You know, so he was able, those truckers, none of them were charged with a crime and none of them were convicted. And yet he was able to destroy that protest, that public dissent uh, by going in and saying, we are going to cut off your money supply. And that's what, uh, you know, the digital passport, as I pointed out before, takes all of you. We live in a, a society where we generally, you know, it's, it's not perfect. It has many, many, many flaws, but we generally are pretty free to do what we want. I can get a plane today if I wanted to and fly from LA to San Francisco. I can, you know, go to a hotel, go, uh, I could go bowling, go to a sports bar, do what I want. But once they give you that vaccine passport, all of those rights turn into privileges that are contingent on your good behavior and your compliance with government dictates. So let's say this, that theoretically, and this, this is stuff that was used during the trucker strike. 
during the truck, you know, in um, in Canada. Let's say they have Tony Fauci without any, you know, scientific citation, without public hearing, says, okay, um, we have a resurgence of Omicron, you know, Zycon or whatever. And we are, everybody needs to put their masks on and social distance. Now there's a facial recognition system or maybe your Apple Watch or, you know, uh, the satellite surveillance shows that not only were you not wearing your mask, but you got too close to somebody in a public area, less than six feet. <laughs> and they now can say, okay, we're going to punish you for that. And without charging or anything else, they can now say, okay, you're restricted to your home for the rest of this, you know, this emergency. And we are going to use, now you have programmable currency. So that, you know, they can tell you, you cannot do anything but go shopping within a half mile of your home. And that's the only place your credit card will now work you know, at the, at the Vons or the Safeway with a half mile of your home. And if you take it further, your credit card won't work. If I try to go to San Francisco, it won't work there. If I try to buy gas on my way to Reno or Las Vegas, it won't. So that's the system they have in China. And that's why we need to be terrified of digital currencies and digital passports, because it will give them total control and total visibility, total transparency about everything you do, every purchase you make, every time you travel, they will have a record of it. But I Very. feel like I feel like we're living in in a weird kind of zombie sci-fi movie. I mean, Bobby, are we are we in a real life Milgram experiment? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, I think um, the objective of every totalitarian regime, and, you know, Hannah Arendt wrote this, who was writing about, she wrote about the comparisons between uh, Stalin's regime and Hitler's regime, and the thing, and she wrote specifically about what they had in common, because there were lots of things that they, you know, that, that were different. But essentially, they, what they had in common was the erection of bureaucratic um, state, a technocratic state, and instrumentalities of control that would make humanity superfluous. And, you know, ultimately, you know, in both those regimes, you had huge swaths of humanity that were classified in Stalin's words as useless eaters, mm. you know, and who were people who did not serve the state purposes uh, and therefore could be eliminated. And, you know, Stalin starved to death three million Ukrainians deliberately, purposefully, you know, uh, by design between 1933 and 1935. And then, you know, that was the biggest mass murder in history at that time. But, you know, later on, Hitler would outdo him. But both of them saw groups that were not beneficial to the state as groups that needed, that were superfluous. And it, it allows, um, you know, these systems, um, de what they, they, they dehumanize humanity. And they commoditize us all. And of course, that's the purpose of that. Ultimately, it's what corporations want to do. They, you know, corporations have one desire. They don't have a conscience. They don't know right and wrong. They only know how to profit. And so, Bobby, the last report I saw said that 21 states are working on the vaccine passports. Why hasn't there been more pushback? Mm. Well, because propaganda works. Right. You know, I mean, that's why there's a what a trillion dollar um, advertising industry, because people know if you repeat a message often enough, no matter how irrational it is, no matter how contrary to the values, that people will believe it. By and large, most, and I think nowadays more than ever, most Americans do not have a defense against propaganda. Right. You know, they're unequipped to defend themselves against propaganda. So we go from war to war to war to war, and each one seems like 
you know, we're told each one is, you know, the other guy, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin is, you know, evil and we, and we need to go and we're not really looking and saying, uh, is this in our national interest? What is the objective here? You know, do we want to be the policemen of the world? Is that our job? And, right. you know, what is, what is the impact on our economy, on our culture, on our role in the world? None of those questions are asked. We're just, uh, we are, we're all susceptible. We're not, we have not equipped this generation of children to defend themselves against propaganda. And my generation, you know, was, I think I was lucky to be part of that generation because we really had a really acute sense of, you know, the, of what propaganda was. So we've and seen they, a real... You know, we stood up in the, the Vietnam in the War and, and et cetera, but I don't, the kids said, hey, you go to on the college campus and there is no protest. They're just... It's almost zombie-like. So, so we see real changes in the polls in America, and um, we're coming into a congressional election in November. If we see real, do you think we could see a shift in both Senate and House to Republican control? Uh, I, well, I don't know what's going to happen, Catherine. If we if we do get a shift to Republican control, will it make a difference? to the policies of vaccine passports or mandates? I think so, because, you know, and I thought, look, you know, I really try to avoid partisanship. Right. Um, because I think what the elite, we're, we're really in a war against, a class war against these right. entrenched elites. Yeah. Or, and what they want to do is keep, you know, Republicans and Democrats hating each other. Right blacks and whites and all these other groups. I really try to stay away from partisanship. And I think because of the nature right now that um, you will see if the Republicans take control of some of those committees, you're going to see back-to-back hearings on Tony Fauci, on the vaccines, on vaccine passports. And at some point, you have to believe that the media is finally going to be have to cover some of this stuff. And that's the at some point. There's no the media used to be a bulwark. Now the media is on all owned by BlackRock. Right. You know, there is no debate. Fox and CNN are both you know assets of BlackRock. And you know they want to pump up the war, and so that all of BlackRock and military industrial subsidiaries can profit and they're betting you know the banks and the financial institutions right. it's all this like this, this um, manipulation of uh you know of public fear and of, of public attitudes and it benefits uh, an entrenched elite of essentially billionaires of um of permanent technocracy you know the uh, symbolized by Tony Fauci's 50-year reign. And um, and then, you know, military contractors and financial houses. Right. Catherine, so, so in your view, Catherine, how do we push back against this bio-state Orwellian technocratic control grid that seems to be very ominous? So there are thousands of ways of pushing back. Um, but I think it's really important to understand you've got to push back bottom up and you've got to push back hard with both the private and the public money. And, um, you know, I think if enough people, so let's just take the United States, if enough people in the United States start taking an interest in their local and state elections and pushing back hard, you could, you could see some real change, but you know, the question is how do we beat the propaganda? And, and that comes back to numbers. I remember listening to Bobby talk about we're at about 35%. We have to get to 50%. Now, I think, for example, the COVID restrictions have done enough harm and the COVID injections have done enough harm that you're, you're building quietly a groundswell of people who are prepared to act. And, and the question is, you know, when are they going to hit a tipping point? The, the, you know, you've shut down a million small businesses. 
Mm. You've, uh, if you looked, I don't know, Bobby, if you've seen the Skidmore survey, Skidmore estimates in America alone, the injections have killed 300,000 people. That's a lot of families. I mean, when, when you, he estimated 300,000 uh, killed and one point, I think it's 1.1 million um, serious adverse events. What I hear when I hear that is 1.5 million families bankrupted. So if you kill a million small businesses and, and you get a million plus vaccine injury, that's got a couple million bankruptcies of families. God bless both of you. Thank you so much for joining me, Robert F. Kennedy and Catherine Orson Fitz. Have a great day, both of you. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.